Welcome. You're listening to the podcast where we interview founders innovating at the near frontier, whose companies will give you a glimpse of the future. Near Frontier is brought to you by Cantos, a venture firm that invests in world-positive deep tech startups at Pre-Seed and Seed. To learn more, visit us at cantos.vc. I'm Amika Padia, bioanalyst at Cantos, and today I'm joined by Cantos' founder and managing partner, Ian Roundtree, and Prelis Biologics CEO and founder, Melanie Mathieu. Prelis is a tissue engineering company that is developing the tools that we need to create fully vascularized 3D printed organs. They're currently working on building an external immune system platform by 3D printing lymph node organoids, which is a system that can basically be used to discover antibodies without having to rely on the animal models that we typically use today. Cool science and tech aside, I'm particularly excited to have Melanie join us on the show today because she was actually my intro into this whole world of tech bio and founder-led bio way before I actually joined Cantos. Sophomore year of college, I came across Prelis in some list of bio startups, and I thought it was really cool that there are bio companies out there that mix a lot of the fundamentals that you really only see in tech companies. Finally, I was seeing something that wasn't quite selling an instrument. It wasn't only focused on developing drugs, and it was actually run way more like a tech startup that was just working on bio. Um, At the time, I thought this was so different from anything I'd really seen, And Prelis particularly stuck out to me because it was a founder-led company with a female CEO, which is still rare today, but it was extremely rare only a few years ago. And so it's just this full circle moment to be chatting with Melanie today. Let's get into it. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you for joining us today. Can you give us the 60-second quick version of what Prelis has been working on? Yeah, absolutely. So Prelis Biologics is a biotechnology company with core competencies in ultra-fast, high-resolution bioprinting. We use two-photon holography to build substructures of tissues and organs. And we do this through creating microvasculature, specialized cell niches, And this allows us to grow larger organoids than what's ever been done before because we have oxygen and nutrient exchange through that microvasculature. And what we've applied this to initially is the development of human tissues and specifically lymph node organoids. And so these lymph node organoids allow for um, all sorts of interesting experiments around antibody discovery, vaccine screening, and um, immunogenicity testing, which is really important for preclinical trial work. And we can do this all outside of the animal. Before we get into antibody discovery and the current process versus what how the prelis lymphoid organoids would help, can you tell us a little bit more about organoids and organ on a chip, kind of what the difference is for those who might not be familiar? Yeah, so organoids tend to be three-dimensional, really just kind of conglomerates of cells. There's been very little to no substructure introduced into organoids. It's really, do they form? Do they stick together? Do they form these little 3D balls of cells? And um, even that level of 3D culture actually starts to give you better answers than what you see in two-dimensional culture. But we're taking it the next level by introducing tissue substructures that allow for cell differentiation and cellular niches to form. 
Now, organs on a chip are more like a two and a half D system. And so you start to grow um, sort of 3D structures, but really they're, they're still on a base, basement membrane, if you will, that um, kind of limits their growth and the morphology that they can create. So from what I remember, the traditional process for how to discover and develop antibodies heavily relies on animal models, usually mice. Um, You immunize a humanized mouse, you isolate immune cells or B cells, and fuse them with these immortal myeloma tumor cells, basically, to produce a cell body called a hybridoma. And that will rapidly proliferate like tumor cells do and produce a bunch of monoclonal antibodies, which you can then collect and expand. And there you have it. Antibodies are produced. I remember when I first learned about that process um, and just the whole thought of fusing tumor cells with B cells to create antibodies quickly um, in another animal too. I just thought that was such a bizarre process, but it's still widely used today. With Prolis' system, how does that change this process of antibody discovery? What can we do now that we previously couldn't do when relying on animal models? So traditionally, um, antibody discovery has been done in animals. And these have been, you know, really great models to take us into clinical development of antibodies, um, especially when you have human B cell genes um, transgenically expressed in mice, for example. However, um, when you develop an antibody in an animal, you still run into problems of immunogenicity and translation into um, an antibody format that doesn't get rejected by the human body. So by allowing access to the fully human immune system, we can skip that step entirely. We start with fully human antibodies that are highly antigen specific. And um, other benefits of our system are that we can mind the genetic diversity of the human population. So all of us will have different antibody solutions that kind of come forth after an antigen or a vaccine challenge, and they may bind to different epitopes of a protein. In fact, we're finding that in our system that different humans um, will have different immunodominant epitopes recognized. And so by accessing that genetic diversity, we can come forward with better antibody solutions for clinical use. So Melanie, for for me and the other lay people in the audience, um, help us understand. So, t- so today, the state of the art is making antibodies in mice, sometimes in other animals. And you, you use a word that sort of like we humanize the mouse or llama or whatever it is and get as close as we can to the antibody as it exists in the human immune system. And then what do we do to close the gap? Are we putting like mouse antibodies in, in people as drugs today? Yeah. So um, if they're engineered to be humanized, um, yes. So so amino acid changes are made in the backbone of the antibody. So we get it as close as we can to a human antibody. And there's a lot of different approaches to do this in the protein engineering world. Um, you can take the, the region of the antibody that is specific from a mouse, just pasted into a human antibody backbone, but often you lose um, affinity of those antibodies to the target protein because the structure just isn't quite the same. So then you have to go through mutational processes and screening to kind of regain that functionality of that antibody. And sometimes it doesn't even work. So you can lose good therapeutic candidates that way. 
Um, and yes, the same thing is done with, with the camelid nanobodies. And um, we also are able to make camelid lymph node organoids in our system as well. So we are approaching that from a perspective of reducing reliance on animals, period. Um, you know, we have a faster way to go about this. It's overall um, a little more cost effective. And we come up with, you know, immediate solutions that can be taken towards therapeutic um, use much quicker. And, and so what you're doing is revolutionary because you're able to take human cells, sort of synthesize the human immune system in a lymph node organoid outside of the body, recapitulate the human microenvironment and make fully human antibodies for the first time full stop? Yeah, so it's true. A lot of people have tried this before. And, um, you know, I come from an immunology background. I have a PhD in immunology and I spent my career studying, you know, how cells work in a three-dimensional structure in a lymph node, for example. And um, a lot of people have done this in a very reductive approach. They'll separate out very specific cell types. They put them in a dish. There's no underlying 3D substructure or cellular niches maintained in that dish. And uh, those cells just don't produce good antibody responses. And often they don't produce good immune responses, period. So beyond just antibody discovery, looking at vaccine screening and immunogenicity just doesn't work in 2D quite the way it does in 3D. Our lymph node organoids do maintain unique cellular niches that are critical for development of the immune response, the human immune response. And so the, the core prelis tech is um, an ability to holographically, aka use lasers to print the structure on which cells grow. And that allows you, rather than having like a blob of cells, which in gravity would be a two-dimensional lump. And I've even heard of certain drug development companies are, are sending samples up to the International Space Station to sort of try and emulate a 3D growth in zero G or microgravity. But you actually print this, this lattice, for lack of a better word, that the cells grow on. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we do. So that is our core competency. That's the engineering that underlies all the amazing discoveries behind building a human immune system out in vitro and having access to that. So um, yeah, we do, we holographically print. Um, we have proprietary um, two photon engineering technology that allows for ultra fast printing. We are about at this point, our engineers have brought us up to about a thousand times faster than any other bioprinting technology out there. And we're at about 10 times the resolution. Um, so we're lower than 10 micron resolution very consistently. Um, we can get down to five micron resolution pretty easily. And um, yeah, so we can, we can really build that substructure and that scaffold that supports lymph node organoid and other tissues that we've worked on. Wow. And so that's why some people might look at Prelis and describe it as a bioprinting or ultimately potentially even organ printing company. Yeah, exactly. So um, the speed at which we can print, um, you know, one of the most delightful things as a founder is when someone totally independent of you who's joined the company later, who's, you know, we've got some great engineers in there, comes up to you and goes, 
the math all works. We could print a kidney in 12 hours, right? And I'm like, yeah, I know it works. And so, you know, that is what we're really headed towards is that ultra high resolution bioprinting of organ and tissue substructures that will allow for solid organ transplantation. In the meantime, and the way to get there, you know, we've entered this tremendous market of human antibody therapeutics and immunogenicity testing, supporting the drug discovery markets there, as well as vaccine screening. So when you have access to human biology, it's going to just blow the doors off of every process we've already been using in animals because of the translational problems. So that's where we're starting, but we're very much headed eventually towards you know, making meaningful advances across across all tissues. 12 hours is crazy. You don't even grow cells in a dish in 12 hours or for just traditional 3D printing with plastics. We don't, I don't even know if you can grow a human or print a human kidney model in 12 hours. So that is very impressive. Certainly not at, at uh, biological resolution. Melanie, before we get back into processes that exist today in antibody development, um, some listeners might have questions about this long-term vision of bioprinting. They might have seen, you know, volumetric out there, which three systems recently acquired, or something about uh, CRISPR editing pig heart for transplantation. Can you tell us sort of what the landscape of cutting-edge um, organ transplantation looks like, and then how that compares to your underlying technology? Yeah, absolutely. Um it's a fantastic um, group of people who've been working to bring this to the forefront because we really know that biology should be done in 3D and organ transplantation is a really underserved area, a place where we could really start to make differences, be it just single tissues or solid organs um, or smaller tissues or solid organs. And so um, the landscape as it stands now really started with extrusion-based bioprinting. This is the forcing of cells through a little nozzle along with some matrix that can kind of deposit the cells in place. Unfortunately, this cannot get down to the resolution that you need to build functional tissues. And um, if you try to do that, it starts to shear the cells in half. The shear forces just don't work very well with that kind of system. And so you can start to build some smaller tissues that way, um, you know, things that are not what you'd look forward to really transplanting per se. Um, and it's, it's a stab at getting the 3D biology right. And it's a pretty good one. Um, when you look at volumetrics technology, it's fantastic. They have, you know, great inks and they use um, single photon printing with their inks. So when you use light to print, it's much like curing an epoxy. And so they do layer by layer, single photon deposition and curing. Unfortunately, for a system like that, they still can't quite break the resolution, um, getting below 50 microns or so. That's necessary to build, you know, truly functional vasculature, microvasculature, and um, a tissue of substance. So they've made some great advances in getting the larger vasculature done, but that microvasculature, you know, every tissue in our body has it, and it's really where you get the most oxygen exchange to the highest surface area to volume ratio. And so that's critical for building, um, you know, larger tissues. And that's why we founded Prelis, even though we understood these other technologies were available. And that's because with the two photon, um, light-based printing. So we can get down to ultra-fine resolution. So that's when I say when we're about 10x the resolution of any of the other methods, 
we're down at five to 10 micron resolution. And we can even go a bit lower than five if we need to, to really create, you know, great microvasculature in a system. And uh, we do this with projection holographic printing, which speeds the system up. If you attempted to do this with single or two photon, just raster scanning across the plane, it would be way too long before you built a large solid organ. So that's kind of the bioprinting landscape, if you will. And when we talk about transplantation of larger solid organs, um, the pig to human heart transplant was very exciting. Um, the human heart is a particularly difficult organ to engineer from scratch. It's a highly organized tissue that contains not just um, cardiomyocytes, but um, it's highly interspersed with very specific neuron sets. And then on top of that, um, because it's so metabolically active, the distribution of the microcapillaries is every 20 microns or so. It's highly dense and um, non-metabolically so active tissues such as fat, you might have like a 200 micron distance between microcapillaries and microvasculature. So to engineer that from scratch is quite the feat. Um, and so it's great that we are finding other transplantation um, methods and approaches to transplanting a heart into people. So that's, that's a great approach. Um, for other organs, such as the liver, pancreatic islets, um, lymph nodes, which we're working on, um, that could be useful in cancer, um, the engineering of those tissues is a little more straightforward and less complicated. So I think that bioprinting will make the first inroads with those tissues. When do you think we'll see the first bioprinted implanted organ? Oh, I think it's it's coming very, very soon. You know, we're already starting to scratch the surface with some of the beta islet um, cell transplantations. Some of those will have difficulty. Um, unfortunately, those are more like little bags of cells that won't fully integrate into the, the human vasculature and become more organ-like. So um, there's anticipated issues with things like scar tissue and lifetime of that transplantation, although it may start to, to help alleviate some of the symptoms of managing type 1 diabetes. So, so that's fantastic. Um, but really what we're driving towards eventually is a fully integrated system that, um, that is, is fed by the human's own vasculature. And so it's really a replacement tissue that should be integrated fully and any scaffold that we print, um, any of the biocompatible scaffolds that we've printed are expected to be biodegradable over time, such that we are really just reintroducing someone's own tissue back to them. And that's why people get really excited, right? Because rather than risking um, rejection of the implanted organ and or having to be on immunosuppressants the rest of your life, you would grow, print the organ from the patient's own cells, probably, right? You take a, I don't know, skin sample and then induce those cells back to pluripotency and then differentiate them into the tissue, right? Yeah, that is the ultimate dream of organ transplantation. Like we have a scaffold that matches, this is the dream, your liver exactly. You know, the blood pressure will match, the biology will match, the surgeon has enough vasculature to do a really great um, anastomosis, hooking up the, the blood vessels to each other. And then we take your own exact cells. This is truly the dream. Repopulate that tissue, do some functional testing and hand your own liver back to you. You know, that is, that is the ultimate dream of bioprinting and why it's going to be such a 
powerful future technology. How long do these bioprinted organs last once transplanted? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is right now with xenotransplantation and other like our traditional ways of doing kidney transplants, for example, typically rejection happens before the organ dies. So now if rejection isn't a concern, what, how long do you think the bioprinted organs would last? Would patients have to you know, go back in a few months or years to get another? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, it's true that lifetime post-organ transplantation is pretty short, especially for things like lung, sometimes kidneys, and sometimes livers as well. And, um, you know, this does happen because you get an immune response to, to foreign cells that come from the donor. And most people who've had a transplanted organ are on a significant amount of immunosuppression just to, to slow that organ rejection. Um, and then you also have to think about in terms of systems biology, you know, if the person is perfectly healthy, otherwise, there's not going to be additional stress on that organ. If they have other health complications, there may be additional stress on that organ. But all in all, you know, if you have a perfectly matched organ, and um, the person is relatively healthy, um, they can last quite a while. There are rare examples of people who've had perfectly functional kidneys that they've gotten from a really great match, a relative or a twin and having it last for decades. Um, So this is totally feasible and, um, you know, would definitely improve um, patient quality of life. Awesome. I want to switch gears a little bit and zoom out from the science, more focus on Prolis's background as a company and how you built it. Um, We've talked a little bit about Prolis's plug-in into drug discovery with the lymph node organoids and excess platform. We've also talked about Organoid or organ printing and the big vision, um, they're really different. How did you undergo focusing, figuring out what market to look at, what application to look at, and developing the technology sequentially? And did did the pandemic play a role in that at all? With um, you know lab work being not as easy to do and, and all of that. Great question. Um, so I've always seen this technology as needing to stair step. Um, you know, we wanted to demonstrate feasibility that we could do something wild, like print a kidney in 12 hours. And we've gotten there, but to really capitalize on our advantage, our unique advantages in tissue engineering, we knew that there were other markets on the way to that. And so that's what the lymph node organoid represents, you know, human biology in your hands, in a dish, um, in a way that's relevant to development of multiple different therapeutic types. And we were thinking about that well before the pandemic. Our first IP on this was filed back in 2017. And I think um, the pandemic was kind of a double-edged sword for us. It was great in that it really allowed our team to focus in human immunobiology um, because it was suddenly deeply relevant to everyone. And uh, people understood very quickly in the tech world that antibodies are really important, right? And uh, can make meaningful differences as are, you know, methods to quickly screen and develop um, relevant vaccines. And so, you know, that that was allowed us to kind of bring that technology forward and have people be really excited about it immediately. Um, obviously, a need a need can drive development there. And so that was that was one thing that was great. And one of the reasons um, we shifted more heavily into that is as you say, um, laboratories shut down, local laboratories that were doing our animal experiments, you know, with transplantation, we've done transplantation, early experiments in that, they they shut down. And um, 
So they finished up the experiments and then closed their doors for over a year. And so by shifting our focus back to immunobiology, which was, you know, indeed very hot at the beginning of the pandemic, and bringing all those experiments in-house, we were able to capitalize on our core competencies and move into that market quickly. What are some examples of kind of projects that you've switched into that are near-term steps to getting to this big vision of bioprinted organs? So we are actively in the process of developing tissues in-house, multiple different tissues, and we're working on product development around the larger lymph node organoids. And so ones that are actually about the size of a human lymph node are um, what we're in development with right now. And so this would allow you to do large human library, antibody library discovery per se. And, and there are transplantation implications that may be interesting with that as well. Um, so we are, we are very active still in developing those larger tissues for transplantation. And I see this as a great, um, great way to get into the market because it is of high interest. We do have it working immediately in the lab right now. We've already done transplant studies with our bio inks and they've worked out very well. So you know, really pulling those all together is kind of the next step. And that's going to pave the way for development of other solid organs and uh, smaller tissues. For any founders listening who might be thinking about a pivot or struggling with deciding where to focus, especially as there's so many external factors um, influencing that right now, do you have any advice or exercises that you went through that helped remain grounded in the chaos and kind of helped you decide what direction to go. Yeah. Yeah. It was really a wild moment, um, right. When the the pandemic um, first hit and I think a lot of founders had to make tough decisions and we weren't alone in that. And I think, um, you know, focusing is actually a theme within our company because we have a bioprinter that could pretty much build anything. So what's next, right? What do we do next? And, um, You know, I think going back to your roots and making sure that you are leveraging your core competencies will always be the right answer. Um, You know, I think when you're looking at the landscape ahead of you, what can you do better than anyone else? And uh, really assessing what your true unique advantage is. And um, as you go towards the market, you know, we all are developing a lot of founders And, you know, everyone I chat with, um, especially with you guys, you know, you have so many interesting, fascinating companies that are so future oriented and doing, you know, amazing leaps and bounds in technology that are just fascinating. But um, often it's that first incremental step. If you can do that better than anyone else and you have a unique advantage and that is part of your core competency, that's what's really going to move the needle for a small company. Sometimes you have to just be the best in your area and rely on that, that expertise that you alone have. Mm, That's such good advice. I, I I do usually think of it in terms of what types of risk you're taking and is it predominantly market risk or technical risk. And if you can just show up and say, Hey, you know, that thing you're doing today, we can do it better, faster, cheaper. Do you want it? That gets you in the door, gets you going, gets revenue in, maybe makes, you know, hiring and fundraising easier. And then once your, your foot's in the door, then you show them the really profound revolutionary things you can do, but it it sort of takes 
having the relationship first rather than showing up and saying, hey, throw everything you're doing today out the door because we've got this totally new, better way. And what you're doing is, you know, now ancient history. That usually doesn't go over so well. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, you're you're absolutely right about that. And, you know, I, I've talked to so many people that will flat out say, gosh, you know, your tech just sounds so science fiction. And it really does, right? Holographic printing of human organs, right? Like it could not get more sci-fi than that. But again, the math works out. It's real. We could do it. But if we tried to do that alone first, the headwinds would be significant. So demonstrating how well this works in a market that is hungry for this technology is really, you know, the first step. And that's why we're, you know, providing fully human antibody libraries in a couple of weeks to people um, with high specificity and in vivo activity. So that's really exciting. You know, doing vaccine screening, immunogenicity testing, all of that is that immediate near-term shift where we can make a huge difference and then continue to expand the, the novelty of our technology in that space. That's a great segue into talking a little bit more about business models and how different tech bio companies approach BD. Most tech bio platform companies are structured in a similar way, which is that the emphasis isn't really on creating your own drugs initially. It's more about partnering it out, like you said, making sure that the thing that you do really well, which is the platform, is being used and validated first. Um, and so it's usually beneficial, we found, to partner with pharmaceutical companies, validate that platform, gain initial data before going full stack and verticalizing. There's two ways that people typically think of tech bio BD. One is horizontal integration, one is vertical integration, and I wouldn't say the two are mutually exclusive. How do you think about both of these? What what has Prelis been focusing on and, and how do you see that changing as the company grows? So... The way that we look at our business model in developing Prelis Bio is that we do have unique core competencies in areas that we could easily partner out, but um, we have so many of them that we can stack on top of each other that it really makes sense to move towards a vertically integrated pipeline, right? We've got the unique advantage of development of human antibody libraries very rapidly, all of the interesting data sets that come along with that, that we can start to leverage and then beyond that, you know, we are building interesting models like tumor human organoids. So if you wanted to test, um, you know, a potential cancer therapeutic, it's actually not very straightforward. The animal models exist, but um, they're widely regarded as, you know, okay. They're not like the best in the world. The best thing to do, the real gold standard would be, do we have a human tumor immune system that we can combine system that we can test something in? So that is something that we are also developing and testing some of our own antibodies in internally right now. So um, for us, the path to vertical integration does make the most sense. You know, we have unique competencies full stack from every step of the way, um, not just one that we can plug in. Um, in the meantime, though, we are, you know, we are working with larger pharma companies. You know, we do meet specific needs um, that they have. And, um, you know, as we build our internal competencies, we're hoping to offer, you know, access or partnership to that full suite of technologies. How do you go about structuring those deals with pharma partners? Um, you know, my background is an academic scientist. And so, you know, 
early partnership discussions for us were more about is this, is there a there there? Let's let's prove that the science is there, and we were able to garner a lot of interest that way. But when it comes to structuring deals, you know, we um, we started to realize that we quickly needed some some backup here. So there are some wonderfully experienced people, and we had a recent hire earlier in 2021, Yelda Kaya prior of J&J Innovation, and she is our current CBO and a true expert in structuring deals. So, um, you know, I think it's more of an art than a science, the steel negotiation. Um, you know, there are a lot of different levers that you can pull in a deal. There can be data sharing, there can be um, cost plus, um, there could be downstream milestones. Um, so all of these should be taken into consideration and weighted differently in a deal. And, um, you know, myself as a scientist, you know, I'm just in awe of the art practiced by a lot of these BD development people and so grateful to have them on board with us. So, Melanie, I know that though your academic background is very relevant to Prelis. You did not develop the technology in academia. You were sort of noodling on it. And then after you left UCSF, that's when you started Prelis. You own all your IP. You're not working with tech transfer. Do you want to you know, give your thoughts on that, maybe give some advice. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, tech transfer offices can be a hurdle for starting a company and out licensing technology. It certainly can be done, but, you know, my idea for behind the physics of developing this, this two photon bioprinter were so unique um, in my field. You know, I'm technically an immunologist. A lot of people aren't thinking about this. I'm an immunologist who just happened to do two photon microscopy. That when I saw an opportunity to do this and move into the world of tissue engineering, um, it actually didn't, it wasn't even compatible with my academic career. Um, I can just imagine someone reviewing a grant submitted by an immunologist asking for money to build a two photon laser. Like, like that just doesn't happen. The fields are so siloed often. And so I knew that the better place to pursue this was truly outside of academia. And so, um, you know, that was my preferred route. Um, there's lots of ways to build a company, but I found it actually, um, you know, very relieving for a lot of the investors we work with. They, they're just a sigh of relief happens when I say, look, we own all of our own IP. This has been independent of other collaborations and work that we've done. And um, I think that's been the kind of path of least resistance for building a company. In terms of building a company, kind of starting a founder-led bio company, which is becoming more common now, um, you kind of you've been at this for a while. What's the best piece of advice that you've been given translating science into a big company with a very long-term vision? That's an amazing question. Um, I've been given so much good advice, and um, you know. That's that's kind of how I approach things. I'm an information gatherer. You know, before I make a decision, I talk to multiple people with different perspectives and I weigh it against, you know, the situation as I see it. Um, I'm not I'm not going to be able to pick out one particular piece of advice, but my advice would be to do that, to be an information gatherer, to talk to as many people as you can, to read whatever you can from anyone who's been in a similar situation, even if it's in a different field of tech. Um, the advice does not change. Um, you know, there are phenomenal books out there written by different VCs, different founders. And um, I think I've learned something from every single one of them, as well as a lot of my mentors. And uh, the other piece of advice I would give, um, I think there's there's two pieces to this. 
One is to just be relentless. You know, there's no such thing as a founder that has it easy. Um, That just doesn't exist or you're not really building something. You know, you have to be passionate about building. You have to really throw yourself into it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so rewarding to build something. So it's absolutely worth it. And um, part of that too is, um, you know, founders have scary moments. All of us do. There is no person who's built a company who hasn't had a moment of, oh my gosh, what's happening. And uh, I just, I think about it like a tightrope to get across. You don't look down. You just have to be focused on the future and looking forward. That's great advice. Is there anything you wish you would have known when you were just starting off? I I wish what I had done was um, very early on, you have to recognize that you can't do it all. Even as a founder, you do have to wear all the hats at some point, you know, and you really do have to have some ability to understand what's going on in all different aspects of the company. But immediately hiring in or part-time or getting, you know, someone who's a consultant in areas that you are not an expert in um, will help a lot. It takes a lot off your plate. Okay. We're, 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 we're getting to the end here. So Melanie, our favorite closing question, if Prolis makes you a billionaire, what are you going to do with the money? Goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, there, I would, you know, you know, I hate to say it. I may take a little bit of a break, but I'd probably start something else. I, I have, you know, become addicted to this idea of building interesting technology, doing good things for the world and, um, you know, potentially even supporting other people doing the same. So, you know, this is, you know, we're all in it together as people. And I love the idea that um, uniquely and individually we can make a difference. And uh, I would pursue that. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll plug your socials in the show notes in case listeners want to get in touch with you. Um, this was really fun, and we're obviously very excited for both the near-term and big vision goals for Prolis when we can finally make bioprinted organs a reality. Thanks, Melanie. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Near Frontier. A full transcript and links to external content mentioned are available in the show notes and at nearfrontier.com, where you can also find other episodes of the show. To leave feedback or suggest future guests, you can find us on Twitter at CantosBC.